For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how national civility is being reinvigorated eight years after a Tucson tragedy. Looking back at some Tucson restaurant history with Rita Connolly. Film writer Chris DeShiel tells how 1986 Tucson once acted as a stand-in for 1951 Las Vegas. And Adiba Nelson considers the many special kinds of black love. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The National Institute for Civil Discourse has an office in Washington, D.C., where staffers can advocate for improving the nature and effectiveness of the national conversation. But it also has an office here in Tucson because the Institute was created in response to the tragic shooting in 2011 that killed six people and injured 13, including then-Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Joining me to discuss the accomplishments and challenges of the NCID are Carolyn Lukensmeyer, who led the Institute since its founding, and Keith Allred, who became executive director on January 1st of this year. Civility is actually a concept that comes from a French word in the 1400s, which really means the duties and responsibilities of a citizen. So we were doing a lot of education in the early years about the role of civility and respect in our democracy trying to work with elected officials in Washington, D.C. in the House of Representatives was extremely challenging because hyperpartisanship had actually dominated the national scene for quite some time already in 2012. Leadership in the form of Eric Cantor at that time actually killed that program. So the Institute shifted and began to work in state legislatures, which today is one of our most successful programs. It's called Next Generation. To date, we've worked in 17 different states, something over 900 members of those state legislatures. And in all cases, after we've taken them through a workshop called Building Trust Through Civil Discourse, they commit more time to spend time socially and learn to get to know one another again. And most important is they take real actions about how to increase bipartisanship in the legislature. When the new legislature was seated in Maine in January, the president of the Senate and the Speaker of the House, both of whom have gone through our training, decided to actually leave the traditional seating pattern in the state legislature, which is all the R's on one side and all the D's on the other side. That's why they always say across the aisle. Exactly. And now that seating in Maine is RD, RD, RD. And increasingly, their understanding of the big cultural divides in the state, as is true in every state in the United States. So you can see, by definition, these people are going to get to know each other in a completely different way than has been typical in state legislatures. Keith, what about the metrics that you use to determine success? I would think that this would be a slippery subject to actually rate. I keep my eye on two particular metrics that uh, are going to be hard for NICD alone to work on, but there are you know, all of us working together. One of them is a measure of how well we're working together in Congress, and there's a measure called the Polarization Index that measures how much the votes are being cast along party lines. And that research has been conducted looking all the way back 230 years. So we literally have the most party line voting ever in our history now, and that's a 40-year trend line of increasing party line voting. 
So one thing we've got to do as a country is turn that back around because the Constitution is built so that only those solutions that can attract broad support will work. And so you just can't make it work with party line voting as the government shutdown makes very clear. Another metric I look at is what political scientists are now calling social polarization. We find that on issues, the American people are not nearly as divided as people think, but there is a rising tide of anger across the partisan divide, and we have concrete measures of that, and so I watch those two, and what I really want to see our country do is to be able to turn the tide on party line voting in the Congress and then turn the tide of how much anger and animosity there is among we the people across the partisan divide. Do you have a perspective on what people are now calling echo chambers? The idea that when we turn to radio news, television, particularly to the internet, we're really turning to places that reflect ideas and conceptions we already have in place. That people aren't allowing themselves to be challenged in the same way, and therefore when a challenge occurs, they may react negatively to that. Well, we know that this issue of people being in an echo chamber and only hearing information that they already believe is a serious issue in terms of our democracy. And as we invite people to join NICD's activities, we actually have a civility pledge. And the number one thing that we ask people to agree to do is when there's a given news event each week, you pick the event, but that you commit to listen to the coverage of that event on at least two channels. If you are a typical Fox watcher, then we ask you to watch that event and how it's reported on Fox, but equal time with MSNBC in terms of how it's reported there. And potentially even add CNN or PBS to that. So you begin to be in a perspective where you, by definition, hear a different point of view about how that current event is being covered by the press. One of the problems with the echo chamber is not merely that you get information that confirms what you already think, but you get a perspective on the other side that confirms what you really think. And I think that's been the real erosion in the news media that has been distressing to me. So as we've gone away from real news reporting to more commentary and talk shows, quite often you'll hear on Fox them bring up something that Democrats did that they think are, is obviously wrong, and then they'll ask a Republican or a conservative to speculate on the motives of why the Democrats did something so obviously stupid. And then on MSNBC and sometimes on CNN, they'll ask a Democrat to comment on the motives of why Republicans did something that is so obviously dumb. Now, there is nothing newsworthy about asking an opponent to speculate on the other side's motives. There's no information gleaned. You don't get greater insight. All, is, all it does is stirs us up. And in closing, can you tell me about any resources online that you recommend to people who want to continue this journey into civility? We have two great resources. Uh, first, everyone can go to revivecivility.org and get great guidance and advice and tools for social media, uh, for other conversations. And they can also go to commonsenseamerican.org where they can join in the search with other Americans for solutions that can attract broad support that we can champion in the Congress. We know there's a hunger in the American people to come together and to connect. We see it all the time in all the programs we do. But the biggest challenge is how to take this work to scale, how to reach millions of Americans rather than small numbers of Americans over time. 
we're creating a civility TV series called Divided We Fall. And we already have filmed six episodes, first with blue-collar workers around Boston and then with a diverse group of millennials around Chicago and Milwaukee. And next, we'll work in North Carolina with rural-urban, and then we hope to bring it to Arizona on immigration issues. My guests were Carolyn Lukensmeyer and Keith Allred from the National Institute for Civil Discourse. Later this year, the construction project to widen Broadway Boulevard will claim the building that, since 1941, has been the home of La Rua's Mexican restaurant. Mike Holquist, the owner, who calls it La Rue's, has been hearing rumors about the street widening since 1983. He decided to finally close the restaurant last weekend. While to some this represents the end of another of Tucson's original dining traditions, food writer Rita Connolly has a broader outlook. She's written a lot about food and history in her books, including historic restaurants of Tucson. When I was like in fourth grade, I wanted to be a writer, and I liked to eat. As I got older, I realized that you can write about food, and what a cool thing to write about food. And, I, you know, I used to read Gourmet Magazine and, um, and in the New York Times, you know, and I thought, well, I can do this. And Jimmy Bogle advertised for the food writer in the weekly. And I thought, oh, what the heck? I'm going to give it a try. And I got the job. And I was very lucky because there were like 20 other people who were up for the job. And I did that for 10 years. And then I was just practically the only thing I do write about. So it's kind of fun. It's actually a lot of fun. Do you think that Tucson is special in terms of the number of family-owned restaurant traditions that we have here? I do. And I found that really true when I was writing the historic restaurants of Tucson, um, because so many of them are in their fourth generation. It's amazing. You know, their grandma and grandpa started it, and then, you know, well, great-grandma and grandpa started it, and it, it just gets passed on down to the next generation. I've also found, though, that that fourth generation, the third generation, doesn't necessarily want to be involved, and so um, that's kind of where it ends sometimes. I think that comes across when we talk about the Holquist family that currently owns La Rua's, or mm -hmm. as they say, La Rue's, which right. was news to me. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I've, I've always called it La Rua's, just because I think my husband calls it La Rue's because he used to eat there when he was in college. But um, yeah, it, 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 it's just one of those things. It just happens that, you know, third, fourth generation, like, the, the, the you know, the Alcharo family. And then that makes it easy for me to write that because they all have these wonderful stories about their families, how they came to the country or how, like, with Mama Luisa's, both times, both owners, somebody was visiting, a cousin or sister or something, and they loved it so much, they thought, oh, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to open a restaurant, and that's kind of what happens, you know, it just, Tucson captures you. Um, Pat's Hot Dogs is another story, they were traveling through town, and um, his wife was from England, and she needed um, to get her some paperwork done, so they stayed a couple of days, and they liked it so much, they stayed forever. What's another interesting restaurant origin that you know of where happenstance led to the foundation of a dining tradition? Wow, now you've now I've got to think about that one. Um, one of the things that I thought was a cool story that sort of might fit in that question, um, at Lotus Garden, Daryl, who is his parents, owned a grocery store. That grocery store is a native street market. <laughs> he came to this country. Um, he was the typical immigrant. You know, he had nothing in his pocket. He had he had a job and he worked for this his relative at the at the grocery store and then he got married. They had a matched wedding and then they decided that they needed more because the grocery store wasn't enough. And so he got the restaurant. 
Well, talking about a restaurant that emerged from the Chinese grocery store business here in Tucson, that was a really important uh, economic factor around the turn of the century, uh, the last century. Right. Let's talk a little bit about how Chinese immigrants might have played a role in the birth of the chimichanga, something okay. you explore in the new book. <laughs> well, there's quite a controversy as to how chimichangas came to be. Years ago, the Tucson paper had an uh, article about the 100 items that are Tucson, and one of them was a chimichanga, and they included the El Charo story. Well, some reader wrote and said, hey, no. His theory was that the Chinese invented the chimichanga. Chinese wives for their Mexican husbands, kind of like a fusion, original fusion food. The thing that I find wrong about that is there were not a lot of Chinese women in Tucson, and when they came, they came to be with their husbands, and, um, and it was really hard to get here. There's numbers in the book about how many Chinese there were all together and, and how many women were here. So my theory is that it, would, it was probably the Chinese cooks who were traveling with the armies. They had the items there. They had tortillas and something on the run or easy to pack in your, ba- you know, your, your backpack or whatever. If the Chinese had anything to do with it, that's my theory. El Charo has a story. Of course, Macayo has a story. Um, Club 21 has a story. Gordos, if I don't know if you remember Gordos, but Gordos has a story about the origin of the chimney. Um, there's also a really neat story about a restaurant in Avondale. Um, they called it the Golden Fried Burrito. And I thought, wow, you know, how could you pass up a dish named Golden Fried Burrito? It was really cute. When he died, they said in his obituary, they said, Dad, we don't care what anybody else said. We know that you were the one who invented the chimichanga. So everybody who has a story believes that that's their story. What do you think about the changing face of Tucson? And what are people who settle here now going to think about Tucson's restaurant diversity and family tradition? Well, I think that we've come a really long way. I mean, mostly, you know, Tucson's known for Mexican food. I don't think that's happening anymore. And I I know that the university plays a role in that. But, you know, we have like four or five restaurants from different countries in Africa. And we have, all of a sudden, there's a rash of Asian restaurants. All of a sudden, there are new to places. And that's really lots of fun. People are taking even Mexican and kind of spinning it a little bit. Like at Tumerico, she's going vegetarian and vegan and putting out some really good food. So I think that things are changing in, in a really good way. You know, people people's tastes have gotten more diverse, and we're even getting away from downtown a little bit, which I think is really great. I mean, I live on I live on the north midtown, I consider it, but there's all kinds of restaurants that I can choose from, you know, international, and more than one very often, you know. There's more than one Japanese restaurant on Campbell Avenue. It's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Food writer Rita Connolly's latest book is called Arizona Chimichangas, published by the History Press. You can see a TV story about the closing of Larua's on Broadway on the next episode of Arizona Illustrated, which airs Sunday at 6.30 on PBS 6. A slightly obscure, small-budget movie from the mid-80s caught the attention of film writer Chris DeShiel. Although he found a lot to like about the performances and the story, he says it was the locations that stole the show. The movie I have in mind today is called Desert Bloom, and it was shot here in Tucson about 30 years ago, starting in the winter of 1984, and released in 86. 
an independent film funded by the Sundance Institute and directed by Eugene Kaur. Desert Bloom didn't make a big splash at the box office, but it's a very rewarding experience. It's about a family living in Las Vegas in 1951, before the boom that turned the city into a gambling mecca. 13-year-old Rose Chismore, played by Annabeth Gish, lives in a bungalow with her mother and two younger sisters. Her stepfather, Jack, played by John Voigt, runs a little gas station on the outskirts of town. He's a World War II vet with a bad leg who suffers traumatic flashbacks from his combat experiences, what they would call PTSD today. He's also a braggart and an alcoholic who vents his rage on his wife, played by Jo Beth Williams, and his stepdaughters, especially Rose, whom he mistreats despite her many attempts to get him to love and approve of her. The sufferings and occasional joys of this family play out against the background of the Red Scare and the arms race, the Korean War, and regular air raid drills at school where the kids are taught to duck and cover. The increasingly paranoid Jack, drinking vodka and listening to his shortwave radio, thinks that something big is up, and he turns out to be right. The government announces plans to conduct nuclear tests in the desert, about 60 miles from Las Vegas. There are a lot of different elements in this coming-of-age story, some of which verge on stereotype, such as the arrival of a beautiful and promiscuous aunt, played by Ellen Barkin, who acts as a freeing influence on her young niece. But the film overall is quite moving. The parallels between the repression and denial of early 1950s America and the same forces on a smaller scale within the family have a poignant effect. John Voigt, in the thankless role of the stepfather, who could have easily come off as just a monster, imbues his character with a palpable mixture of frustration, weakness, and bumbling good intentions. He just nails this part. You can't take your eyes off him. Most importantly, however, the director, after interviewing over 500 girls, picked Annabeth Gish to play Rose, a 13-year-old unknown who had never acted in a film before and playing a part that requires her to be in almost every scene, essentially having to carry the movie, Gish is terrific, touching and vulnerable and holding her own with tremendous poise throughout the picture. Desert Bloom was shot in Tucson on a big empty lot south of Broadway along 3rd Avenue. The filmmakers put up a house and a trailer park. In another section near the railroad tracks, they put the gas station. There's a story that someone was fooled by the realistic-looking trailer park and approached the set to ask how much it would cost to rent there. As Rose and her friends walk to and from school, you may notice many lovely old houses in that neighborhood. And in one prominent shot, looking down 4th Avenue from 16th Street, you can clearly see the A on A Mountain in the distance. The school that Rose attends, with its mission-style arches, is in fact the University Heights School on Park Avenue just a little north of Speedway, which is now an apartment complex. The filmmakers also took over a block on Congress Street for a few weeks, if you can imagine, from the Rialto Theater west to Fifth Avenue, and decorated it with kitschy 1950s signs and decor to make it look like the Las Vegas Strip in 1951, shooting scenes there at night when the businesses were closed. You can see the Rialto Marquee off to the left, and reflected in a big shop window as Rose walks down the street early on, is the unmistakable architecture of the Congress Hotel. It may seem odd to some people, but I find such details very affecting, especially in this case because Tucson is standing in for a completely different place at a remote time. 
So to see these familiar details in locations through which I've walked or driven on countless occasions, employed to evoke a vivid fictional dream, is like peeking behind the curtain at a magic show and seeing how the tricks are performed. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Estimates say that one in every eight people in the U.S. is black. In Tucson, that number is one in 20. It's common for many African Americans to go days without seeing someone else who looks like them or who shares their experiences. Over the coming months, Arizona Public Media will share a range of stories that reveal things you may not know about Tucson's invisible 5%. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. She's an independent contributor to this show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona Public Media. Black Love, a Conscious Collective. This is The Word, and I'm Adiba Nelson. You heard about it. You've seen it in movies. There's even a television show that is literally called Black Love. But what is it? What does that mean? Why is it political? And why does the American Black community celebrate it so damn much? Well, to understand it, I first have to break down exactly what I'm talking about when I say Black love. I'm not just talking about romantic love. I'm talking about all the love in the Black community. Parent-to-child love, partner-to-partner love, brother-to-brother love, and love amongst the sisters. Then I need you to understand the why of black love and why in the world I'm here talking about it when my husband and many of my friends are definitely not black. I'll answer the easy question first. I'm the one talking about it because for those of you tuning in for the first time, surprise, I'm black. Been black my whole life, roughly 15,000 days. So it's safe to say that I know a little something about this topic. In short, black love is deeply rooted in history and survival. When African people were brought to this country, they were torn away from their communities, their families, their friends. Sometimes whole families were brought over together, but not always. They were brought over in the most deplorable means of transportation, and if they survived the Middle Passage, were split up again when they were auctioned into slavery. Through that trauma, love grew. Love was, and still is, a means of survival. And I don't mean sexual love. I mean that I got your back, you got mine kind of love. That kindred, knowing, hopeful kind of love. And that love fed, clothed, and housed whole families from infants to elders. African women, AKA black Americans or African Americans, formed bonds with other women on their plantation and nursed each other's babies when one of them had to nurse the master's baby. They braided each other's hair. They taught each other's children. They even hid each other's husbands and sons, all in the name of survival, in the name of love. When black people were not allowed to marry in this country legally, they invoked the African ritual of jumping the broom. In Africa, this act was considered legally binding. And so it was that despite the conditions of their daily lives, the love was going to persevere. Parents disciplined their children and each other's children out of love. 
Historically speaking, and yes, still today, you can find parents being extra strict with their children, laying down the law on everything from attire to vernacular. Because once upon a time, if you didn't dress right or speak white in public, it could literally be a matter of life and death. Today, in the 21st century, we have somewhat moved out of that mindset, but there are still a number of things rules and regulations, expectations and standards that must be upheld by many black children because as black parents, we know that still, societally speaking, the same rules don't apply to our children. The old adage, don't embarrass me in public, rings extra loud for our community because we understood then, as we do now, that by the actions of one, the whole lot is judged. And back then, the whole lot being judged could result in a loss of wages, or worse, a loss of life. As women, we commiserate over our shared experiences in existing to this point in this country. We sisters go to the beauty salon and get our hair laid, weaved, braided, locked, twisted, and cut all the way off. And this time in the chair is our time to talk about the news, our children, our relationships, our health. We share our heartbreaks and our celebrations and ask for prayer here. We welcome new babies here, celebrate our daughter's first press and curl here, and ask for consultations at the funeral home when laying our mamas to rest. We do this all in our own way, using our own vernacular, Sometimes we spend more time there in a single day than we do in our own homes. We meet in churches and kneel in prayer together. We go to each other's homes and cook together. We look for each other. We protect each other. We love each other. We are each other's safe space. And some of the most lively conversations for men can be had in the barbershop. And many of the same discussions had by women are had by men in that same shop with the addition of the never-ending debate, who's the best shooting guard, Jordan, Kobe, or LeBron. But in the barbershop, men hold each other accountable for their words. The debates get loud. There's laughter and hand slapping. There's the side-splitting roast of the barber in the first chair and the occasional booster that comes through selling CDs, DVDs, and hot plates. To the outside world, it is chaotic and angry and loud. But to the men inside, it is love. It is the place they can wear their hoodies without fear of being killed. The place where they can talk openly about their fears for their sons without being judged. The place where they can celebrate that 4.0 GPA, college acceptance letter, or winning field goal, and the entire shop celebrates with them because a win for one is a win for all. The nod we give each other on the street, the simple act of speaking to another black person we pass, even though we don't know them, that is the nonverbal affirmation of the Black Love Collective. It is an acknowledgement of who we've been, who we are, and all that we will be. Or, more simply put, it's just black love. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The music was by Jaime Soto. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. 
The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.